want to welcome you to this brand new series as we walk through the book of Colossians together. Our theme for this month is going to be Jesus over everything. That's the theme throughout the book of Colossians that continues to get repeated all throughout this, this letter. Hopefully you had the opportunity to start the challenge, the reading, Bible reading challenge that we gave you last week. The challenge was this, to read through the entire letter, there's four chapters, to read through it three times throughout the week. And hopefully you're off to a good start. If not, if you didn't know about it or whatever, you just didn't get to it this week, uh, get, uh, get after it, get after it this week. Imagine, imagine getting to the end of this series after four weeks of uh, reading through the letter of Colossians three times a week. Imagine getting to the end of this series, and you've read through this one letter 12 times, what that might mean for your spiritual life, what that might mean for your spiritual growth. Uh, you know, some, of, some of you have seen your favorite movie more than 12 times, right? And you, you know it by heart. Like, if you, you can quote lines from the movie, if it comes on television, you know what's coming, and you can almost say the script along with the actors because you've seen it that many times. Imagine knowing a passage of Scripture so well uh, because you've spent so much time with it that you just, you know it by heart. Uh, I'm, I, I don't know that I know every single word, but I know most of the lyrics to Scars in Heaven by Casting Crowns because Caleb plays it like 20 times a day. And so uh, because of the repetition of that, I, I, I know that song pretty well. And if you listen to the message or Caleb, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's a great song. They are playing it to death. Um, but what if, what if you knew God's word that well because you've just spent that much time with it, with this particular uh, portion of Scripture? I, I think that's going to be beneficial to us. So if you didn't get after it this past week, that's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to come down hard on you. I'm just going to challenge you again. Let's get after it this week and, and make it a priority to spend some time in the Word of God, obviously, uh, but, but in, in the book of Colossians. It, it, I don't know how much you know about Colossae. Maybe you know a bunch. Maybe you know all the stats and figures. Uh, but I have up here a, a map, uh, I think. There should be a map, maybe, yeah. You have a picture of a map? There it is. Okay, so this is Colossae. Now, it's really zoomed in. Uh, it's about 100 miles, if you're familiar, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you'll be able to pull this up. It's about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, and it's in present-day Turkey. And at the time, Colossae was one of three cities that were kind of growing all at the same time. Uh, Laodicea, you probably heard of. Heropolis, you may or may not have heard of. Uh, but these three cities were all kind of growing together at the same time. Eventually, Colossae uh, declined in, in its population, in its influence, while the other two cities really took off. And there's different reasons for all of that. Uh, there's not much there now. Uh, like I said, it's in present-day Turkey, and there's really not much there. There's a few ruins that they have discovered uh, from Colossae. The Turks came in and just destroyed it uh, a long time ago, and there's just not much there uh, today. But if you would, uh, now that you kind of have a reference in your mind to the location, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the city and what was going on in that city. So if you would join me in the book of Colossians, this letter, what we call an epistle uh, that Paul wrote, we're going to start together in Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at the first two verses because of the context of this letter, a lot of the information we need is right there in those first two verses. So we first of all find out this is a letter from Paul, from the Apostle Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an Apostle of Christ Jesus. Now here's something interesting, uh, from also from our brother Timothy. Now I want you to go to the end of the letter, go to the very last verse of chapter 4, verse 18, and you'll see uh, something interesting. You get to the end of the letter, and then it says, "...here is my greeting in my own handwriting." Paul. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and it says, uh, remember my chains, may God's grace be with you. And you go back to verse 1, here's, here's what that's all about. We find out that the letter is indeed from Paul, but in some way Timothy is 
helping him write this letter. Most likely, uh, he's the one who's actually penning it, physically putting it down on the parchment. And so whether Paul dictated it and said, this is what you write, write this word for word, or he gave Timothy the thoughts, Timothy writes it out and they work on it together. How, we, don't, we don't know exactly how they worked all of that out, but we know it's from the Apostle Paul and the physical handwriting of this, uh, he got help from, from Timothy. Verse 2, he says, We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. What's really interesting about this particular letter is that Paul didn't start this church. In fact, Paul never visited this city. Uh, it's not even mentioned in the book of Acts. And so there's these questions uh, uh, that arise. Okay, well, then how did this church even get started? Paul's the great missionary, and he never visited this city. So how did the church start? And, and, and why is Paul even aware that they exist? Uh, why is he writing them uh, this letter? Those are great questions, and I'm so glad that you asked uh, those questions because I'm going to hopefully give you some good answers. Paul had an incredible ministry in the city of Ephesus. Like I said, that's about 100 miles out toward the coast away. And during that time when Paul was in Ephesus, there were two guys who traveled from Colossae to Ephesus. Right? That was where they're from, from Colossae. They traveled to Ephesus. And while they were there, they met Paul. They met Jesus. They trusted Jesus as their Savior through Paul's ministry. The two guys' names, which we'll see uh, one of them today and later on uh, throughout uh, our study in, in Colossians. One guy's name is Epaphras. We'll meet him today. And then Philemon is the other guy that... Also, it's, they didn't know each other necessarily, uh, but they both traveled to uh, Ephesus from Colossae, met Paul, was part of his ministry, trusted Jesus as their Savior, and went back to Colossae. And you know what they did? They started telling their friends and their family members about Jesus. They started sharing the gospel with people in their city, with people that they knew, and a church started. Now, just let that sink in. The great missionary Paul has an impact in the city of Ephesus. Two guys meet Jesus through that ministry, go back to their hometown, and they just start telling their friends and their family about Jesus and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. People become uh, saved through just their testimony of the gospel, and a church starts. And this church is so uh, alive and vibrant and uh, dynamic that... Paul gets to hear about this church that he never started, uh, never met in person, and yet they do some amazing things, and they, they find themselves in our canon of Scripture today. It's an incredible story. Uh, just kind of let that sink in about maybe how God could use you as you just share the gospel with your friends and your family members. You fast forward in, in their story to the time when Paul was in prison in Rome. And Paul was in prison in Rome, and Epaphras shows up, and he shows up for two reasons. He goes to Rome to visit Paul, number one, to minister to Paul and to help him. But the other reason that he comes is they've got some problems in the church of Colossae, and he's not sure how to deal with it. He needs Paul's help to deal with some of the issues that they were having in the church in Colossae. And here's what was happening. In the city itself... There were a mixture of beliefs and philosophies, uh, and we, we understand that. That's how our uh, cultural dynamic is today. There's all kinds of different viewpoints and beliefs and philosophies, and it's all kind of mixed up, and sometimes it gets jumbled up in, into not just one thing, but a bunch of things that get into this all new thing, and that was what was happening in, in Colossae. There was Eastern philosophy that was coming into that city. There was a Jewish uh, population there, and they were really into legalism, and so that was part of the, the cultural dynamic. Uh, there were uh, Gnostics. Gnosticism isn't something we talk a whole lot about. Uh, if you're not familiar with Gnosticism, 
Um, the simplest way I know how to describe that to you is it's this belief that all physical matter is evil. I'll talk a little bit about it a little bit later on, but all physical matter, anything you can touch, all physical matter is evil, and only spirit is, is good. So physical matter, evil. And the consequence of that belief that the Gnostics had was that God, being holy, being spirit, uh, he had to keep his distance. He had to keep a far, far distance from us because the physical is evil. And so he had to keep this, this distance. And that was one of the beliefs, this Gnostic belief that was in that city. Uh, there, were, there was angel worship. Uh, there was astrology or a strong belief in astrology. You know, that still exists even today. And so you have all of these different beliefs and philosophies that got mixed up in this, in this first century city. And some of that was creeping its way into the church. And it was affecting, it was impacting in a negative way their doctrine, their theology, uh, the way that they were living their Christian lives. And so, yes, this letter was written in the first century, but a lot of those beliefs that I just talked about, they're still alive and well in our culture today. They still exist. And we still, as a church, as a group of Jesus followers, we still have to be very careful that the philosophies of our culture, that the beliefs, the unbiblical beliefs of our culture don't creep in uh, into our worldview and uh, move us towards an unbiblical worldview. They, they don't distort our doctrine. We still have to be very careful with that even today. I mean, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. You visit any city in America today. You pick one. You visit any city in America, and you walk around the city, and it won't be hard to find a church in that city that celebrates, visibly celebrates, and uh, advertises the homosexual agenda with all kinds of stuff on their buildings. It, it is not hard to walk through any city in America and find a church that not only celebrates, uh, but also advertises that we are a church that embraces the homosexual lifestyle. And uh, it's, it, you might wonder, how does that happen? Because that is clearly unbiblical. Uh, it's, it's indefensible from a biblical standpoint. So how does that happen? It happens when churches no longer view the Word of God as the supreme authority over our lives. That's how that happens. When it's no longer the source of truth, when it just becomes one source or a source of truth among many, and all the sources of truth kind of have equal footing, that there is not one source of truth above all other opinions or philosophies. When that happens, well, then churches can just, they just do whatever they, whatever they want. And, and the same thing is true in our personal lives. When, when we demote the Word of God to one source of opinion or truth among many that are all equal, then we can just do whatever we want. You have your truth, I have my truth, and if they collide, well, I guess whoever's bigger and stronger wins. And, and that's just kind of how uh, our culture has been operating for a long, long time. And they saw the same thing in Colossae, and it, has, it was working its way into the church. And so this letter is really important for us today. You need to know what's happening uh, presently in our culture that I think will make this even, even more important for us. What I just described to you, where you have a truth and I have a truth and we all just kind of do our own thing, that's what we call moral relativism. And our, uh, our culture has been operating with a philosophy of moral, culture, uh, moral relativism rather, for a long time. I mean, for a while, that's kind of how we've been doing life as a culture. And uh, that's not where we're at today. Our culture, in the last several years especially, has really moved beyond that now. We've gone to the, the next level of that as a culture. It's no longer a moral relativism. It's a moral absolutism. And the moral absolutism that many in our culture 
are, are believing and, and indoctrinated in is this. If you are a liberal elite in this country, uh, it's a moral absolute that everybody else in the country believe what they believe and do what they want us to do. And uh, so it's not just, okay, these silly Christians, they, don't, uh, they do these weird things and think these weird things and they can just do their thing and we'll do our thing. That's not where we're at anymore. We've moved beyond that to this, this distorted and disgusting moral absolutism that says everything that we would say is, is sinful and all the things that we would say are right from the Word of God. That's all been turned upside down. Uh, from, from those who, who uh, believe in this moral absolute that you and I, as Christians, must abandon the truth of God's Word and believe and practice what they uh, tell us to believe and practice, or we are considered heretics and we must be punished. That's, that's where we are in our culture. We're moving beyond relativism, and we're moving into this upside-down, disgusting, distorted form of moral absolutism. I tell you all that, and you probably feel that. You maybe not put it to words, but you, you sense it. The reason we need to understand where we're at is because this letter is challenging the believer, not just in Colossae 2,000 years ago, challenging the believer. We have to be rooted and established in the gospel. We have to make sure that we are very, very confident and grounded in the truth of the gospel. Because if we are not rooted and established in the gospel, we could very much find ourselves in the same danger that the Colossi church found itself in, where we're worshiping something other than Jesus, where we are following something other than Jesus, where we're putting our faith in something other than Jesus. And we don't, we, we're not going to be around as, as, as a church with any kind of spiritual power if we start moving in that direction. Here we go. That's the background. That's what's happening. Uh, there's this prayer then that happens in verse 3. Let me read it to you. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had uh, this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news or the gospel. This same good news, this same gospel that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth of God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras which we just talked about. He's our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he's helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. What a wonderful report. You know, Paul is sitting in this Roman prison, and Epaphras comes, and he's, he's excited about the things that God has been doing in the lives of these believers. And Paul rejoices over that. Verse 9, so we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will, to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. Your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened uh, with all His glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light. I'm going to save verse 13 and 14 for a little bit. We're going to stop right there. This is a beautiful prayer, right? It's a, it's a powerful prayer that Paul prays on their behalf. And what I would like us to do just take a moment, and, and I want to pray that prayer over us as a church. Would you just bow your heads? Father, we, we want to thank you for the faith that you have given to those gathered in this church, to those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their forgiver of sin, their Savior from hell, and, and leader in their lives. 
And we thank you for the heritage of faithful leaders who started this church in a schoolhouse many years ago and and who made disciples uh, throughout the decades. And we thank you for your blessing upon this church with, with growth throughout the many years. We ask that you would give us greater knowledge of who you are and your will for us. We ask for your spiritual wisdom and understanding. We ask for the strength, endurance, and patience to live for you and honor you. We ask that you would produce spiritual fruit through our ministry at Grace Fellowship and fill us with joy that the world cannot make sense of and a daily heart of gratitude towards you that overshadows the challenges that we face. Thank you for rescuing us from sin and darkness. Open our hearts and minds to your Holy Spirit this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, who is supreme over everything. Amen. This prayer is powerful. This prayer is beautiful. And it might seem, when you you first read, it might seem like it's just filled with a, a bunch of random requests for random blessings. It kind of has that feeling to it, but it's really not. It's actually very much focused on one thing. There's a lot of different ways, uh, that, that a lot of beautiful words that are used here, but it's focused, this prayer is focused on one thing, that these believers would, would understand deeply and fully that Jesus Christ is supreme that Jesus Christ is supreme. That's what we're going to talk about today, so I want you to say that out loud with me. You ready? Jesus Christ is supreme. That's what we're going to talk about. And I don't know if you know that word. We don't use it uh, that often in our cultural language today. Uh, We don't go around using it very much. You might say, well, you know, I I got a taco supreme at at, uh, burrito supreme at Taco Bell. And I uh, was reading it while I watched The Born Supremacy. Like, I've seen those movies more than I've read the book of Colossians. Uh, I don't know how you might use that word supreme or last time you heard it. So just to make sure we all understand from a biblical perspective what we're talking about, supreme means superior. It means superior to all others. Superior to all others. It is the highest in rank, the highest in authority, the highest in power. That's what the word supreme means. And it might sound simple. It might sound straightforward to believe and to understand that saying, oh, yet Jesus is supreme. It might sound simplistic, but here's the thing. When we really believe that, when we really believe and understand that Jesus Christ is supreme and we understand the depth of that simple truth. It's not just a knowledge thing like, yeah, Jesus is supreme. It moves into our hearts and it changes us. The more we understand the depth of that simple truth that Jesus is supreme, that he is over everything, the more it transforms our everyday lives. I'll give you a few examples. When you do something wrong, when you say something wrong, when you step outside of the boundary lines that God has set for us, sometimes when we do that, we feel terrible, right? That's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're like, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. And there are times in our Christian lives where we may step like way over the line and we, we not only feel terrible, we feel maybe like we're the worst Christian that's ever walked the planet. What do you do with that feeling? What do you, what are, what are we supposed to do with uh, those feelings of guilt or, or shame or regret? What, what are we supposed to do with it? Are you just stuck with it forever? Just carry it around? Do we ignore it? Do we rationalize it and just maybe hope it goes away eventually? We know from the Word of God that it only truly gets resolved. The only way that these, these feelings of guilt and shame and regret ever truly get resolved is by understanding and believing that Jesus is supreme as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our Forgiver. And we'll talk about this uh, here in just a moment. But if you don't believe that, if you don't live that, then you're just kind of stuck with those feelings for the rest of your life. How about this? Let's say you go to church and you hear a sermon on how you should live. 
part of the sermon is these are the things that the Bible says we should do. These are some of the things the Bible says that we should not do. That's pretty common that you would go to church and maybe hear something like that. And it's also pretty common that people uh, hear that and they're like, I think I'd rather just do what I want to do. Right? That happens all the time. So what is it that motivates a person? What is it that motivates a Christian to do the things that God instructs us to do, to live the way, to live inside the boundary lines that God has given us, especially when it seems like, man, this list of things I should do and those things I should not do, it's a lot less fun than what I want to do. And to do these things, I mean, it's a lot more effort than I want to put in. It's a lot harder to do those things than if I just kind of do my thing. What would motivate us to do what God is calling us to do on an everyday basis? That motivation comes from believing and understanding that Jesus is supreme. How about this? When you hear voices in the culture, when you hear voices in the classroom, now listen, I, I know there's some topics that... Maybe in the, in the past, it's like, uh, boy, that's, that's kind of, got kids in the room. Yeah, I, I get it. We've got kids in classrooms in the first, second, third grade that are being exposed to things throughout the country. We've got to talk about this stuff. And, and, and when, when we hear in the culture, when we hear in the classroom, things like gender is fluid, homosexuality is my identity, I was born this way, I can't help it. When we hear things like pro-life people hate women, when we hear things like the color of our skin, that that might as well just be the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, like somehow this, this part of your physical anatomy is your identity, that that somehow is supposed to drive your, your political beliefs, that that somehow is supposed to determine who you can be friends with and who you can't. When we hear things like your faith, your faith, that's fine. You want to be a weird Christian, that's fine. Your faith needs to be private. You need to compartmentalize your faith from every other part of your life. When you hear things like, how do you, how do you filter that stuff out? How do, we, how do we as Christians go through life with confidence of what's actually true? And, and the way we do it is by never wavering from our conviction that Jesus Christ is supreme. In the next section of chapter 1 that we're going to read together this morning, uh, I don't know what kind of uh, heading. Now, the headings aren't inspired, right? The people that translated your Bible, uh, they put those headings in there. And the heading that you might have uh, is Christ is Supreme. That's the heading that's in mine. Uh, but whatever heading you have, the, the verses that are there, those are what's inspired by God. And uh, they're going to describe for us, I'm going to break it down into three ways that Jesus Christ is supreme. Let's just say it one more time together. Jesus Christ is supreme. And he's going to gather up these, these heresies, this confusion, this misplaced faith that's going on in the culture that's seeping into the church. And he's saying, guys, you need to get rid of all that. You need to get rid of all of that stuff. Stop replacing Jesus on the throne because that's where he belongs. And come back to this truth that Jesus is supreme. Here we go. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, uh, for he, who are we talking about? Jesus. Jesus has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now I paused on purpose to go through all of those things because every one of those is an important reason why Jesus Christ is supreme as our Savior. Jesus is supreme as our Savior. That's what he's describing here. No one else can do what Jesus does. You know, our greatest problem in life, I don't know what, if I ask you, what's your greatest problem? I don't know what you would say, but our greatest problem in life is sin. When you break it down, or whatever it is, our greatest problem in life is sin. You go all the way back to creation when life was truly perfect. When God created everything, everything was perfect. No sin, no, no death, no sickness, no 
COVID, no broken families, no prisons, no bad attitudes. I bet you even raisins tasted good back in creation. Like, I bet it was that good. So what, everything was perfect. What changed? What broke everything? Sin. Sin wrecked everything. It's our greatest problem in life. And it's also our greatest problem in death. Sin is the reason hell exists. Sin is the reason that you and I, why we deserve to spend eternity separated from God. We can't dig ourselves out. We can't rescue ourselves from this problem with sin. It's our greatest problem in life. It's our greatest problem in death. And what we just read here in verses 13 and 14 is that Jesus Christ is supreme as our Savior. No one else can do what He does. And, and I just want to break down, go back and, and just celebrate and be excited with you about the specific things that Jesus does for us as our Savior. It says here, He delivered us. He rescued us from the penalty of sin, from the powers of darkness. He rescued us out of that pit that we couldn't dig ourselves out of, out of that prison that we couldn't break free from. He rescued us. I'm not sure what word you have uh, in, in your text there in the, in the New Living. Uh, it says transferred us. You might have the word translated. You might have a different word. Uh, but the word in the original language is the word that you would use for deportation. Deportation from one country to another. Now, I understand. I don't think that's something we do anymore. Like, I don't, I don't know. I guess that's not something our country does. Uh, but there are countries that do that. There are countries that, that uh, deport people from uh, one country to another. It's happened all throughout, throughout history. And, and the language here is, is this idea that he didn't just rescue us. He didn't just pull us out of the pit and just leave us there and walk away. He didn't just rescue us from the prison and say, have a good day. He deported us. He transferred us. He translated us from the country from this place of darkness into his kingdom of light. He moved us. He didn't just leave us there and say, have a good life. He translated us from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. He redeemed us. That word means to release a prisoner by paying a ransom. How did he do that? He, he met the, the holy demands of God's law in his death with his blood. He appeased God's wrath against sin. He, he paid the sin debt for us so that we could be free. It says there, He forgave us. He forgave us. That word literally means to send away our sin. It means to cancel our sin debt. That's what it means. Not because we deserve it, not because we could earn it, but this is God's gift of grace. This is why we're saying that Jesus is Supreme as our Savior. No one else can do this for us. My daughter Hannah is in her second year of, of college. Many of you know that. And uh, this is the third semester now we've had to do this. Uh, she has some, some student loans. Many of you can relate to that. Either you've had them, your kids have had them. And uh, if you've done this, you, you understand that a student... Maybe not every student, but most students, they can't just go and get a student loan, right? They need mom and dad. You know, unless you're, like, super wealthy uh, or you've got a really great job. But uh, most of the time, a student doesn't, doesn't have an income to back up getting a loan, right? And so what has to happen? Well, mom or dad's got to co-sign the loan, and we've done that for Hannah. We've, uh, we've co-signed. I've co-signed for her student loans. And what that means is I promise to pay that debt if she can't. That's what that means. And Angie and I, we, we try to put some, we don't try, we do, we've made a promise that we would, put, uh, we would put money towards that loan while she's in college to help her out. We're trying to help her as much as we're able to do that, right? So that's a common thing. If you've been through it with your parents or maybe you've done that with your kids, a common thing. We understand the idea of a co-signed loan. Listen to me. Here's why I'm telling you this. 
I'm telling you this to make sure you understand. Jesus did not co-sign your loan. He did not co-sign for your sin debt. It's not that Jesus is paying part of your sin debt while you work off and, and pay for the other part. That's not what's happening. Jesus paid it all. Do you get that? Jesus paid it all. No one else can do for you what Jesus has done for you. And we can't go through life and, and, and not really understanding that uh, and, and act like somehow that we are uh, contributing to the sin debt payoff program. We're not. Jesus did it all. No one else can do for us what Jesus does. He is supreme as our Savior. Verse 15. Verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created uh, in, and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see. Now, here's interesting. It's not just at the molecular level, like the things you can see at the macro level, the things you can't see at the micro level, the subatomic level. It's not just that that he's talking about. Look what he says. He gives the example of thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. So it's even the spiritual world that we're talking about. He is supreme over everything. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Jesus Christ is supreme as the Creator. Now, the false teachers in the first century in the city of Colossae, they were trying to answer a question that uh, people today still oftentimes are trying to answer. Here's the question. Why, why does evil exist? Why is there evil in the world if, if creation was made by a holy God? You ever heard someone ask that? And they're like, oh, I got you, Christian. You, you're so dumb. You can't even answer this question. Why is there evil in the world if this God you serve is so holy and he's the creator? And they think they've got us. Well, the, the answer is really not that complicated. We find the answer in the story of creation, the very first, second chapter of the Bible, where we understand the answer to the question that God did create. Everything was perfect. Everything was good. And it was his gift of free will that he gave to us. He didn't make us robots. Uh, he, he gave us the, the, the ability to really choose, and uh, we use that, unfortunately, uh, to disobey God. This, it's not a complicated answer to that question. But see, they, were, they, did, they didn't have that knowledge or understanding of God, and so they're, they're searching and they're trying to figure out the answer to this. The conclusion that they came to, this Gnosticism, was that God, who was, who was holy and perfect, God, uh, He created other beings, and those other beings then create other beings, and, and eventually you create matter, and that matter was evil. And so there's this, there's this distance in creation from being to being to being to matter that you and I live in, and uh, that matter was evil. And there's this gap of distance between God, who is holy, and the creation of physical things that, that is that is evil. And if it sounds complicated, it's okay. You don't have to try to figure it out. It's a heresy, so don't spend too much time on it. Uh, if it were true, if it were true, here's what that would mean. It, it would mean the gospel isn't true. If that were true, the gospel can't be true. Because what's the gospel teach us? It, te it teaches us that Jesus uh, entered humanity and took on flesh. Well, God, if this is true, then God can't touch flesh. He can't be part of flesh uh, because holy and, and evil, they, they, can't, they can't mix. And, and so that wouldn't, that wouldn't be true, which would mean that his sacrifice on the cross would not be sufficient. That's why it's a heresy. Another thing that would impact your life and my life in another way would be, if that's true, the Holy Spirit, as the New Testament teaches, would not be able to indwell the believer. Well, the New Testament clearly teaches the Holy Spirit lives inside and dwells inside the believer. And if this uh, heresy was true, it's not, if it was, then then that couldn't, that couldn't be true. So Paul rejects this heresy 
and pushes back on it, makes sure that the church in Colossae is, is not moving in that direction. And he says, Jesus existed before creation. Now, when Paul says that Jesus was the, quote, firstborn, he's not, he's not using that term in, in terms of time period. He's using that, again, in terms of status. Firstborn in, in that culture could be used in two ways. Number one, you're physically the firstborn. Uh, the other way it can be used is that of status. In, uh, if you are the firstborn, there's a certain status that comes in the family unit. Uh, you are above the other siblings. How many of you are second or third sibling? You're like, yeah, that's kind of how it was in my, my family. But uh, when Paul uses this phrase, firstborn, he's not talking about time. He's talking about status. Jesus is not a created being. That's not how he's using the term. Jesus is, as he makes very clear here, Jesus is the creator. And he is supreme in creation. He has the highest rank the highest authority, the highest power in all of creation. No matter how big or how micro or even the unseen spiritual world, Jesus is supreme in all of creation. All things exist for Him and hold together in Him. Here's why this matters. Like, oh, that's nice doctrine. That's fun theology. Here's why it matters to you and I. Our worldview as a Christian is very much tied to what we believe about creation. It's not that it's this creation versus uh, evolution. Is, uh, we've been told it's like, oh, that's science versus faith. And it's not. That's not really the, the issue at all because those who believe in creation, I would be one of them, uh, those who believe in creation, uh, we don't reject a scientific approach to the known world. And those who promote evolution, no matter what they would say, they don't divorce themselves from faith. They just have faith in their worldview. If you think about it, uh, at least from my perspective, it takes a lot more faith to believe that everything that we know in the known world is some random explosion than to believe that there is design uh, by a creator. And you look at just uh, how everything in the mechanism of the universe and all the way down to the micro level, how there's just, there's design in it, and it takes, in my perspective, uh, it, it takes more faith to believe in, in a random explosion, in a random accident that somehow turned into this, than it does to believe in the design of a creator. So it's not that they're divorcing themselves from faith, they just have faith in a worldview rather than faith in a creator. And what we as Christians, listen, here's Again, why it matters to our doctrine, our theology, our behavior, what we believe about marriage. You understand, what we believe as Christians about marriage is not what our culture believes about marriage. You, you know that, right? You, you have friends. You, yeah. So what we believe that the Scripture teaches about marriage is way different than our culture. What we believe about sexuality, what we believe about gender, what we believe about what it actually means to be human about the origin of evil, about the solution to the problem of sin, all of that ties back to what we believe about the creation story, about the record of creation as it's revealed in Genesis, that the supreme creator is Jesus. It's all tied back to that. Science certainly plays an important role in our lives today, something we should be very thankful for. There's a lot of good that has, and, and God willing, will continue to come from scientific study of the, of the known world that God has created. We can be very thankful for uh, the scientific minds that exist. But we also need to remember this. Science is not infallible. Jesus is. Science is not to be worshipped. Jesus is. Science is not the final word on truth. Jesus is. Jesus Christ is supreme as creator. Verse 18, one more. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, here's the word again, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he's first in everything. Again, the same way of using that word. First in authority, first in position, in power, in rank. 
supreme. For God in all His fullness who was pleased to live in Christ and through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. There's, there's an old saying, uh, too many chiefs and not enough Indians. You ever hear that phrase? Uh, how about this one? Uh, too many chefs in the kitchen. Did you ever hear, hear that phrase? Well, there are ways of saying not everyone can be in charge. And when you have too many people in the room that, that want to be in charge, uh, there's conflict and there's, and there's problems without good leadership. And to be quite honest, if you don't have those willing to follow good leadership, what are you left with? You're left with chaos and confusion and turmoil and tensions. And very clearly here, Paul points to Jesus as the supreme leader. First of all, of the church. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, Paul says. And you, when you walk through the New Testament and you see how this image of Jesus, the head of the body, and it's described in different parts of the New Testament, we see that he gives life to the church. He supplies spiritual gifts to the church through his Holy Spirit. He cleanses the church through the Word of God. Uh, he presents the church to the Father blameless through His blood sacrifice on the cross. All throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus is the supreme leader of His church. The church, what we call the church, obviously is not a building. Uh, the church is the gathering. That's what it means. It means the gathering of Jesus' followers. And then other places like this, it's described as the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head. I'll just pause on that for a moment, uh, because there's also something, that, a tension that still exists, and probably will continue to exist, of this idea, well, other church, you've heard this, the church is not the building, the church is the people. Yeah, that's true. But the word means the, the gathering of believers, it's the body of Christ, and if the Let's just take my thumb. I like my thumb. If my thumb's like, you know what? This body's stupid. I'm out of here. And, and the thumb says, I'm going to go do my own thing. Well, that's going to be a problem for the thumb. That's going to be a problem for the rest of my body. Thumb's kind of a, cause how am I going to do this? You know, eh, good job. I, how am I going to do that uh, if I don't have my thumb? So this idea that you know, we don't really need the gathering, we don't really need the body, it's not biblical. And it's not even that wise. It's kind of foolish. And so we go back and we see that the body is this gathering of Jesus followers. It's the body of Christ. He's the head. He's the leader. Here's the other part we need to understand from that. He is the head. He's the supreme leader. We have earthly human leaders. Yes, in the local church body, you've got pastors, you've got elders, you have other church leadership, and that's important. But we as leaders, pastors, elders, leaders, we have to always, always remember that Jesus is the supreme leader. If we walk away from that, even a little bit, we are in for problems. We always have to remember that He is, he is the supreme leader. This church doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. He, and he loves this church. He cares about this church way more than even you and I do. And I'm in love with this church. And I want to be a good leader in this church. And I know I can say this confidently that those that are in leadership, they want to be good leaders. But here's the scary thing, and it's just a reality. It's possible to be a good leader and not at the same time follow Jesus. That's possible. You can be a good leader. You can have good leadership technique and good leadership strategies and be a good leader and not necessarily be following Jesus. And that's kind of scary. But here's the thing. The only way for a church, the only way for a, a church leader to have the kind of spiritual power that's described in the New Testament, the resurrection power of Jesus, the only way for that to happen, to go from uh, good to like amazing things that only God can do in his, in his power, the only way that happens is if the leaders are following the supreme leader. Does that make sense? If the, if the gathering of Jesus' followers are following the supreme leader in our everyday lives, it's true in your life, you know, you can be a good person. You can. You can be a good person. You can make good choices and not necessarily be following Jesus. You can do that. 
But here's the shortcoming of that. The shortcoming of that is this. Uh, if, if, you, if you want to have the kind of abundant life that's described in the New Testament, this abundant life of, of spiritual joy, peace, satisfaction, courage, the stuff that can only come from Jesus, if you want that level, if you want to go from this is good to this is amazing and this could only come from God, if that's what you want, you have to let Jesus be the supreme leader of your life. When we get to chapter 3, there's a bunch of instructions there on how to live. You know, do these things, don't do these things. We're going to look at that stuff. If you want to live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him, that's what it says here in the, in the opening prayer. You know, if, you, if you want to do these things, here's, what, here's how you do it. We're going to look at that. But what is it that would motivate our hearts to want to do that? If Jesus is not the supreme leader of our hearts, if Jesus is, is, uh, is not the one that's sitting on the throne of our lives, if we're kind of like, well, I'd rather sit on the throne. If that's where we're at, here's what happens with Jesus. He becomes an advisor. He becomes a suggestion box. And in some cases, he even becomes an obstacle that's in the way of what we want. No, if we want the abundant life that Jesus can offer us, he has to be the supreme leader of our lives. Jesus Christ is supreme. He is superior to all others. He's the highest in rank, authority, and power. And I want to go back, circle back to the prayer and just plug this in. Just listen to this. If you want to know God's will, all the, all the things that Paul prayed, if you want to know God's will, if you want to have spiritual wisdom and understanding, if you want to be able to live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, if, if you want to bear spiritual fruit and have this spiritual strength that can only come from God, if you want endurance and patience and joy, even as the world is kind of going down the proverbial toilet, if, that, if you want something greater than what the world has to offer, then you have to make sure that Jesus is supreme as your Savior, as your Creator, and as your leader. Put Jesus first in position and let Him lead. I told you about a cosine loan. No, that's not how, that's not how the gospel works. How about a, a, a co-pilot? You ever have someone, Jesus is my co-pilot. It's a terrible place to put Jesus. What? Why would you put Jesus, if you've got Jesus, why would you put him as the co-pilot? It's a terrible decision. A better decision is, hey, Jesus, you fly the plane, and I'm going to go back and be the, the flight attendant, and I'm just going to serve people and let you fly. Isn't that a better way to live life? I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll serve other people. You fly the plane and get me where I need to go. How about that? Put Jesus in first position. Let him lead. And I'll just finish with this. Uh, this question, who is sitting on the throne of your heart right now? I can't answer that for you. Who's sitting on the throne of your heart right now? Who are you trusting your soul with? Who are you trusting with whatever trial, either now or on the horizon? Who are you trusting with that? If the answer to those kind of questions is anything or anyone other than Jesus, your hope is in the wrong place. Jesus is supreme. One more time out loud. Jesus is supreme. God, thank you.